podcast for people who really fancy a good story. I'm Emily and I'm Rebecca and this week we have got some coming of age stories that both disturbed and delighted us to share with you. (laughs) So that's exciting. I'm I'm excited to get to that but before we do, how's your week been? My week has been good. My highlight is that I've attended a couple of events with V. Schwab this week I obviously talked about her book, The Invisible Life of Adi LaRue, last episode, but the hype has not died down. No, it has not. Um, so I actually attended a virtual workshop with her, but I'm going to talk about that later when we talk about writing. Yeah. But the other event which I went to was last night, and it was a chat between her and Lee Bardugo, who I didn't think I knew, but I actually have a book of hers in my Goodreads list, ah. I discovered. So I feel like I do need to actually read that now. But yeah, I've just been consuming a lot of V.E. Schwab content this week. And I think it's because I just like listening to her talk about writing. Like she talks about the process a lot. And like she's quite like a dreamy person, but an anxious person. (laughs) And so I think I just like hearing someone who reminds me of me talking about writing. Relatable to you. Yeah. And she's also like really open in her interviews. And I've noticed on social media as well, just like talking about how writing isn't easy Mm -hmm. so even though she's like living the dream she has like 15 books published or something like she's still open about how not perfect it is which I think is really cool yeah that is nice Uh, so yeah just enjoying her content this week nice how about you yeah I mean my week's been fine I've basically been working a lot so I don't have a lot of highlights but I did I went to the Good News Poets workshop by Sabrina Benham again Mm -hmm. last Sunday, but I'm going to talk about that more when we talk about writing. (laughs) And I took a little road trip this week, which was spontaneous and quite Mm -hmm. fun. So that broke up the week a little bit. Nice. So what are you infatuated with this week? I am infatuated with White is for Witching by Helen Oyeyemi, which is so good. Yeah. And it's really hard to describe. <laughs> I know from reading her other book, The Opposite House, mm-hmm. how difficult it is to describe her style. Yeah. But I've not read this one, so I'm intrigued. Yeah. So this one came out in 2009 Mm -hmm. and the first four pages are like really disjointed like prose poetry Mm -hmm. and those pages honestly don't make sense until you finish the book. I love that. (laughs) Um, But yeah I love that as well I actually think it's really effective because this whole book works on like disorienting you Mm. and what better way to do that than just like confuse you off the bat and be like what am I reading? (laughs) (laughs) But unfortunately, it does make it quite hard to talk about. But I will try my best. So I'm glad that you picked it for an audio-based <laughs> description. <laughs> I know. <laughs> so this book is mostly about Mary, or Miranda. She has pica, which is a compulsive eating disorder where people eat non-food items. Oh. Uh, and Mary mostly likes to eat chalk and plastic. This is already so fucking trippy. Yeah, also her dad is like a pastry chef. <laughs> Excellent. Yeah, and he always tries to make all these like really pretty desserts and meals and stuff for her to eat, but she doesn't because she'd just rather eat chalk, you know? Yeah. She has a twin brother, Elliot, and they live in a bed and breakfast which their father, Luke, runs. Their mother, Lily, is dead. You actually read about her death right at the start of the book. 
and the bed and breakfast is a house that's been in Lily's family for generations. There's always a dead mum called Lily. Yeah. I feel like I've read about six books with a dead mum called Lily. So yeah, and so the book follows Murray's downfall, really, suffering with Pika and also seeing ghosts in the house. As one does. As one does. Casual. Yep. So I do also want to add, before I go into my analysis, that there is like a racial element to this book, which you can maybe gather from the title. The house is in Dover, which for those listening outside of the UK is on like the southeast coast of England and it's where refugees often arrive, Mm -hmm. having come over the channel from France. So to totally brutalise the subtlety (laughs) which she writes, the house they stay in is racist basically. It's not something I'm going to talk about a lot today because it's actually done through a lot of subtle language, like mentioning things about refugees throughout the book which don't seem relevant at first. Or like, or rather, you're like trying to work out how mm. it's relevant. And the scenes where it's made more obvious are what I kind of class as spoilers for the book as well. So I don't really want to read them out. And lastly, I just want to be totally honest and say I've not worked out exactly how I read what is an extended metaphor throughout the book. As I said, Mary has pika. She eats foreign objects, and I think there's a link between that affliction of hers the house and the refugee crisis Mm. so like England is a body and the xenophobic population treat refugees as something that should be rejected but yeah I just feel like I haven't worked it all out in my head enough to talk about it yet so I'm telling you guys it's there but I need to think about it more so yeah I just wanted to mention that before I like go into the rest is there any like alluding to like the white cliffs as well because I always feel like that might be a good yeah metaphor yeah anyway it is, it's, it's really interesting. It's, it's a very good part of the book, but like I said, I still need to work it out and also it's the most spoilery part, I yeah. think. So I'm, I'm going to just leave it. And her books are very, like, cerebral. Like, they do take a while yeah. to sink in. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah, like, I read this a couple of weeks ago and I, I'm still thinking about it. <laughs> so. so yeah, we have three main narrations or points of view for most of the book. We've got Elliot and we've got Mary and we've got Ori, who is a friend of Mary's. Elliot's narration is probably my favourite. He's a really elusive character. I find that you never really understand what he's thinking, mm. but the irony is that his narration's in first person, whereas like Mary's sections are in third person. But you oh. know way more about her than you do about him. So I find it like super interesting that Elliot's narration even though it's in a style which like suggests you know being in his head mm-hmm. looking at the world through his eyes is actually more mysterious oh and i love that yeah it's like he's like purposefully withholding information from us which i just think is brilliant writing it's oh so my good God. this is so irrelevant sorry to put you off track but i think <laughs> i think i've talked about this book before but did you ever read inside the mind of gideon rayburn no i didn't I can't remember who wrote it, I'll need to try and find out, but mm-hmm. I remember reading it as a teenager and it's just stuck with me so much because it's about, it's in first person, but it's the first person narration of a girl who is stuck inside the mind of a boy, Ooh. but she is one of the characters, one of the girls that he meets, oh. but you don't know which one. Well, so you you learn more about Gideon Rayburn than the narrator. Yeah. But you know that you've met the narrator. It just reminded me of that. It's, Ooh, so, that's it's such a good technique to do like first person but like elusive. Yeah. Anyway. Yeah, this is um a book of very unreliable narrators, which I think you will see as I talk about it. Mm. <laughs> as I talk about it. So yeah, I wanted to get onto my first quote from another narrator, and this narrator is the house. 
So not only is there a haunted house, which has a hidden floor, by the way, oh, which I is hate just that. disturbing on so many levels. Is it above but... or below? <laughs> no one knows. Who knows? <laughs> I think it's between the top floor and the one under it. Oh, I hate that. Yeah. Oh. It's, it's creepy. Anyway. But yeah, so the house actually narrates part of this novel. So this quote is about Mary and Elliot as toddlers. And Luke, their dad, is watching him and his wife Lily from the doorway. I am here, reading with you. I am reading this over your shoulder. I make your home home. I am the braille on your wallpaper that only your fingers can read. I can tell you where you are. Don't turn to look at me. I am only tangible when you don't look. Luke knows this feeling from an early visit he made here with Lily and the twins. He knew that I was nothing like that flat of theirs in London. One day, he came in from the back garden and stood in the sitting room doorway, smiling while his wife sat on the floor knitting a tiny jacket for one of Miranda's dolls and using a socked foot to wheel Elliot's spare trains across the carpet so he could have train races. It was summer, Lily had tied streamers to the ceiling fan and her freckled shoulders were covered with sun cream. And the twins had four years of life between them. Elliot in a pink t-shirt that hugged his pot belly and Miranda in a dark blue dress and a little sailor's hat. There was a thing that Lily, Elliot and Miranda tended to do when they were together and he joined them. They pretended he wasn't there at first. He knew that on some level it was intended for his benefit so he could look at his little rosy English family as if they were in a portrait. When he said hello they'd come alive to him but first he had to say it. Before Luke could speak this time, Elliot wobbled over to Lily, wearing a look of grim determination peculiar to children who have only just learned to walk, reached out and yanked her hair hard. Lily didn't stop knitting, but she eyed Elliot sternly and said, Elliot, you are hurting me. Elliot didn't answer, and he didn't let go of her hair. He sat down hard, trying to drag Lily's forehead to the floor. Luke didn't know why he couldn't move. I knew why. It was because I'd lent all my weight, every wall and corridor, on his shoulders. He was lucky I allowed him to stand. Miranda, on one of the armchairs, with her lap full of Barbie dolls and her thumb in her mouth, emptied the dolls onto the floor and crossed the room faster than a thought to grab a handful of Lily's hair too, wrenching at her head from the other side. Lily's fingers tightened around the knitting needles and she let out a long breath. Elliot, she said, and then, Miranda. She raised her hand to the back of Elliot's neck and pinched him hard. She did the same to Miranda, dug her fingers into the skin. It looked practised. The twins let go of their mother immediately. All three of them laughed and their eyes were full of tears. Luke walked away and went out again, let himself in through the front door this time, noisily this time. Hello, he called, before he even reached the sitting room this time. Hello, they all called back. Good mother, good father, good children, all watched over by me. Oh my god, that's so sinister. (laughs) It's so disturbing. (laughs) Oh no. It sounds, it starts off sounding like it could be like a nice house and then Mm. it just isn't a nice house. No. So yeah, having the house as this like living, breathing thing which watches over you is obviously very unsettling. And it really turns it into this like menacing force. And 
as you read this book you start to understand that it can like influence people like as suggested in that quote there where Luke can't move Mm because the house isn't letting him so I don't think it's a spoiler to say this that Mary's pica and her ability to see ghosts is probably influenced by the house especially because you learn that all of the preceding women in the family also suffered from the same afflictions yeah how good is this for your phd oh yeah i'm definitely writing about it (laughs) scary house women going insane yep so yeah i also thought i'd read a bit of a longer quote where elliot describes them moving into the house and his and mary's reaction to it Mm -hmm. Uh, i think there are about 10 in this quote Our new house had two big brown grids of windows with a row of brick in between each grid. No windows for the attic. From the outside, the windows didn't look as if they could be opened. They didn't look as if they were there to let air or light in. They were funny square eyes, friendly, tired. The roof was a solid triangle with a fat rectangular chimney behind it. Lily bounced out of the van first and I scrambled out of the other side and crooked my arm so as to escort her to the door. The house is raised from the road and laid along the top of a brick staircase, surrounded by thick hedge with pink flowers fighting through it. Careful on the steps, Lily said. The steps leading up to the house bulge with fist-sized lumps of grey-white flint, each piece a knife to cut your knee open should you slip. Opposite our house there is a churchyard, a low mound of green divided into two. The graves beneath it are unmarked. Lily took my arm and held Mary's hand, and when we got up to the front door, she rubbed the crescent moon-shaped door knocker and laughed a little bit and said, hello, hello again. The first thing Lily showed us inside was the dusty marble mantelpiece. It was so big that Mary could crawl into the place where the wood was supposed to sit. She tried to make crackling, fire-like noises. When we were ten, I always knew the meaning of the sounds she made, even when they were unsuccessful but ended up choking on a puff of dust that bolted down the chimney. Next, Lily showed us the little ration book larder behind the kitchen. The shelves were wonky and the room had a floor so crazily checked that none of us could walk in a straight line in there. I remember how brilliant I thought it all was. There was nothing for it but to jump in the air and yell and kick and make kung fu noises. Mary and I conferred and decided that we liked the tallness of the house, the way the walls shot up, and with the certainty of stone, like we're in a castle, Mary put it. We liked the steep winding staircase with the gnarled banister. We especially liked the ramshackle lift and the way you could see it working through a hole worn into the bottom in the back left corner. We liked that the passageways on each floor were wide enough for the two of us to stand beside each other with our arms and legs spread, touching but not touching. I climbed one of the apple trees and surveyed the garden, the patches of wildflowers that crumpled in the shade, the Anderson shelter half-hidden by red camellia shrubs. I was well pleased. Wicked house, I said. Magic, said Mary, from somewhere below. Oh, that's so good. I know. <laughs> the little dialogue at the end there. Yeah. I know, I actually don't really have a lot to say about that quote. I just think, I don't know, I just think she's done such a good job of describing... A very creepy setting, but through like childlike wonder. Definitely. Um, like there's so many gothic elements in this house, but they find it so wonderful. <laughs> um, I think as well the fact she's done it from like a s- perspective of someone close to the ground. Mm, yeah. Like it's all about the floor and the bottom corner of the lift and how the walls are so tall. That's true. I hadn't even thought about that, but yeah. 
Yeah, definitely. So yeah, I also want to talk about the relationship between Mary and Elliot because it's a very intriguing and fraught one. Mm. And I'm actually going to read the quote first, then talk about it. Mm. So just for a little bit of context, Elliot has just left his girlfriend, Emma, who in front of him cut her hair so it would look like Mary's. And this is his reaction straight after. Okay. (laughs) I didn't go straight home. I walked around the park opposite our house, kicking at the railings, trying to think what to do. I couldn't blank Emma altogether, because that would look weird. Also, I couldn't risk her saying anything to any of our other friends. Everyone would believe her, because at the back of their minds, everyone thinks that twin brothers and sisters grow up magnetised towards each other. The prince at the foot of Rapunzel's tower, before the tower is even built. The lover you can get at all the fucking time. The one who is you but a girl, or you but a boy, whose bed you know as well as your own. How could you endure that without falling in love? The question is, were they born in love with each other, these twins, or did it blossom? At any rate, it's already happened, the onlookers agree. It must have. Ask them when they fell. The brother and sister say, no, no, it's nothing like that. But what they mean is they can't remember when. Oh. So, yep, got a wee bit of an incestuous vibe going on here. <laughs> oh, but that's so sweet as well, though. Yeah, I think it is sweet. It's like... Yeah, like, I I get that people find incest stories gross because it is disturbing, but I think that's why I find them fascinating to read about, mm. especially because in this book, like, Elliot's weirdly, like, justifying their connection, like, mm. saying, like, all twins are that way, which is obviously not true, but I do think it's true that twins or even any kind of sibling have connections with each other that no one else could have. Yeah. And... Yeah, it's as if the house is like twisted that innocent connection or that like innocent closeness and made it into something very wrong. But yeah, as you can tell from that quote there, like Emma, his girlfriend, wants to look more like Mary because she thinks Elliot will be more attracted to her. And that's her like weird, spiteful way of getting him to admit it. That's so fucked up on so many levels. I know. <laughs> But I, it's sad. I don't know. It makes me sad. But then I'm also like, but no, like I should not want them to be together. Obviously, no. But um, like I think as well, like something that I find with stories, where not even like overtly that much incest vibes, but mm. like there is always like a special love for siblings in stories that like I find really fascinating because I don't have any. Yeah. I don't know. I just think. It does seem to be such a unique kind of mm-hmm. love that yeah yeah it's like it may it would make sense like it's a best friend that you've always had mm-hmm. but it's also your family yeah. which is essentially what a lover becomes yeah yeah that's so, true you know you I, I can get it I get yeah. why there's so many stories like that yeah definitely but yeah, I'm actually going to do something we don't really do on here, which is I'm just going to read out like a bunch of little lines from throughout the book. Okay. I'm just kind of going to gr- like group them all together. And I'm not even really going to give context for them, but they are all about Elliot and Mary. And I think they describe so well without actually like saying anything, their relationship with each other. It's all about like the actions and the small details, mm. which is what is brilliant about the writing in this book. So this is the first one. When Elliot saw Jaleel's sunflowers on the sitting room mantelpiece, he asked where they had come from. She told him, 
A look of such extreme sarcasm crossed his face that Miranda rushed to him and covered his mouth with both hands before he could speak. <laughs> I enjoy that one. That seems very sibling-y to yeah. me. Speaking as someone who does have a sibling. <laughs> and here's another one. He shrugged. She took some chalk out of the pocket of her dress. When she offered him a stick of it, he looked surprised, but took it and stuck it in his mouth, pretended to smoke it like a cigar while she ate. That's very sweet. Yeah. Lily shook her head. I liked it. I collected pictures and I drew pictures and I looked at the pictures by myself. And because no one ever saw them, the pictures were perfect and true. They were alive. Mary and I looked at each other. Alive, we said. Alive like how, I added. Lily laughed. Alive like they were alive. They talked and moved and told me who I was. I'll never forget. What did they say to you? I can't remember which of us asked that. (laughs) (laughs) I just like that little bit of them, like, speaking together and they're, like, confused about who said what in their memories and stuff. I enjoy that moment. Yeah. But yeah, as you can see, they do have this, like, unspoken understanding between each other and I should add, it's not necessarily that Elliot and Mary are in, like, a romantic or sexual relationship. It's as if they, like, just tread over the line and just enough to make us uncomfortable. Like, in the lines I read out, you could just read them as really close siblings. But I'm going to read another one in a moment where things are definitely not quite right for a brother and sister relationship. So yeah, I just wanted to end on this one. A pair of hands slipped over her eyes and rested there, heavy and warm. The screwdriver fell. Hello, Gretel, her brother said in her ear. She heard the screwdriver roll across the floor and knew he had kicked it. No more music, and Lily and her grandana stopped talking. Their silence had breath in it, though, as if they were simply waiting. Hello, Hansel. She laid her own hands on his wrists. He kissed the tip of her ear. So we're in a fairy tale. I knew it, she said, as he led her out of the laundry room, steering her into the sitting room, switching the light on with his elbow. You weren't in South Africa. You were in a gingerbread house getting fattened up, weren't you? And there weren't any telephones in there. He uncovered her eyes, sat her down on the sofa and handed her a stick of chalk. She held it and looked up at him, blinking at the sudden rush of light. He rubbed his head. He left flecks of chalk in his hair. I'm sorry, he said. I'm just really shit. You are a bit, she said, and tried to look at him as if she forgave him everything. Oh my god. (laughs) That is such a beautiful paragraph, though. I know it is. But yeah, apparently the book wasn't creepy enough. We also needed, like, fairy tale references. Yeah, because Hansel and Gretel is creepy all on its own. Yeah, exactly. So yeah, a lot of the time, like... I kind of forgot it was a supernatural book because you get so wrapped up in like the more sort of coming of age storyline. Mary does go to uni, which like isn't a spoiler. That's where she meets Ori, who's the other character who I've not really spoke about today. Mm. You're getting like the relationship between all the characters, Mary's Pika as well. But I think it was done on purpose so that when you do turn the page and find those scenes with like the ghosts or or passages from the perspective of the house ones that are just eerie and scary like you're taken off guard yeah and yeah I think I read this book in two sittings it's quite short but I just 
found it really gripping and I could not put it down. And there were moments where I was actually going like, no, <laughs> while like reading it. Yeah, um, she does that really well where she skirts between like the very like quotidian everyday mm-hmm. and just like then it's literally like you open a door and it goes supernatural. Yeah, I'm really keen to read more. But yeah, she was really good. As I said earlier, I'm going to be writing about this for my PhD, which is exciting because mm. it means I'll get to read it again. I um, definitely want to read it now. It sounds so good. Yeah, I think you'd like it. And yeah, that's me today. Highly recommend if you're looking for a creepy read. Nice. <laughs> Exciting. I, I love that. I love like show and tell episodes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I know. Uh, that went a lot quicker than I thought it would. I thought I was going to be sat there for ages. Um, <laughs> well, it's fine because I think I will be. <laughs> yeah. So yes, what is your infatuation this week? My infatuation this week was actually sparked by something that you said last time, mm-hmm. um, which was you were talking about The Invisible Life of Adi LaRue and you said that a book that makes you want to write is one of the most like valuable and important books to you. Yeah. And after we recorded that, it got me thinking about, like, why my favourite books are my favourite books. Mm -hmm. And then I was like, what are my favourite books? (laughs) Um, So I ended up going back to one of my, like, tried and true favourite authors, Carson McCullers. And I wanted to try and figure out, like, what it is that her books do for me that makes me love them so much. Mm -hmm. And so I think I realised that my biggest payoff from a book is when it helps me to make sense of something that has either, like, been bothering me... Not necessarily troubling me, but like that I haven't had the words for. Mm. Which isn't like profound, that's why a lot of people love reading. But what I thought I'd do today is just take a look at three of McCullough's works. She's got two kind of semi-autobiographical novels, uh, The Member of the Wedding and The Heart is a Lonely Hunter, and also her novella The Ballad of the Sad Cafe. And I just wanted to talk about the parts of each one that left an impression on me. Oh, nice. So it's another show and tell. Yes. But fair warning, I think I'm going to talk quite a lot. So I have not done a rant this week (laughs) because this is going to be enough. I'm sure everyone's devastated. I know. Sorry. Hate to let down the fans. (laughs) So before I start, you know that I love a bit of biographical context. Carson McCullers, like most of the authors that I seem to gravitate to, (laughs) is very tragic (laughs) as a figure. She was born Lula Carson Smith in Georgia in 1917. So just take yourself to Georgia, 1917. But she was very much a New York writer because she was really like progressive and she lived most of her adult life in New York until she died at 50. So most of her work is set in the South, but it always represents a place of like trauma or horror. And the way that she approaches it is almost gothic in all of her works. Shout out to Hannah if you want some <laughs> southern gothic. No, uh, it's Alice. It's Alice. Southern gothic. Oh, sorry. Well, yeah. Alice then. I knew it was one of your other PhD pals. <laughs> She's reported as saying when news of her going back to visit the South shocked her friends, I must go home periodically to renew my sense of horror. which I thought was very funny and that sense of horror for her I think comes from a place of otherness because she was quite often frail and bedbound she had three paralysing strokes before she turned 30 and she was almost always like dying Mm. like she was always just having surgeries and like always ill so she writes about the human body from like a really sad perspective of someone who is very much reminded of her own fallibility Mm -hmm. And as well as that, she was made other by her 
what she called her sexual ambivalence. I think we would probably now call it gender nonconformity mm. and like bi or pansexuality, but obviously there wasn't a vocabulary that existed back then for her to express that. And I just wanted to read a bit out of an introduction to one of her books. Virginia Spencer Carr writes about her really well. She says, In some of her short stories, McCullers made her autobiographical characters young boys or men. Once out of the South and enjoying considerable fame as the young author of The Heart is Lonely Hunter, McCullers readily acknowledged her sexual ambivalence. To poet Louis Untermeyer, she said in 1940, By the time I was six, I was sure that I was born a man. McCullers often fell in love with women, but such infatuations seldom led to physical relationships. Although she adored such men as composer David Diamond, her cousin Jordan Massey, her Charleston friends Edwin Peacock and George Ziegler, psychiatrist Roland F. Fullulove and Sidney Eisenberg, playwright Tennessee Williams and director John Houston, probably the only man she knew intimately was Reeves McCullers, whom she married twice. Oh, really? Yeah. <laughs> um, which I just think is a perfect paragraph to show you how fascinating she was. Yeah. Honestly, I could spend all day just talking about her. But I will leave it there, and hopefully people will go and Google her, because that <laughs> is honestly the tip of the iceberg. But on to her writing. <laughs> so I found out about Carson McCullers when I was like 16 or 17. Um, my hair English teacher... I was really taken with Tennessee Williams, and so she recommended I read The Member of the Wedding, um, which is a really simple story, and rather than trying to sum it up, because it is so simple, I'm going to just read the blurb. So, The Member of the Wedding. 12-year-old tomboy Frankie is hopelessly bored with her life until she hears about her older brother's upcoming wedding. Bolstered with lively conversations with the family maid Bernice and her own unbridled imagination, Frankie decides to take a very active role in the wedding. She plays out her fantasies about the event and even hopes to go uninvited on the honeymoon, so deep is her desire to become part of something larger than herself. With perception, humour and pathos, Carson McCullers shows a girl torn between the yearning to belong and the urge to run away. So it actually does tone in quite well with what we were talking about there. She has this, like, it's not her brother that she's in love with, but she's, like, in love with the love that her brother and his wife have. Right, yeah. And she doesn't really understand how she feels about it, but she just wants to be in it. Yeah. And she doesn't understand why people think that's weird. Right. So yeah, it's like, not a lot happens in it, but I don't think I've ever been hit so hard by a book. (laughs) Because I read it, like I say, I was about 16 or 17, but like, I still knew nothing. And this is obviously about like a pre-adolescent girl going into adolescence, and like something that's really well done in it is that she goes from feeling like she knows what she's about as a kid to knowing absolutely nothing in the space of one summer. Mm. Um, So obviously it's like relatable for anyone that's ever been a teenager but I think because of the age I was when I read it I felt really like protective of her Yeah. because I felt like I was going through this like all these changes and it was as if I could see her like about to walk into it. Yeah. And I was like oh man, (laughs) so stressful. So... Yeah, it's just really vulnerable and pretty, and I'm going to read out the beginning of the book because it's my favourite ever beginning of a book. I think before you read that, I think that's how I felt when I first read The Perks of Being a Wallflower. Really? I think that's how I felt because, I don't know, I just, like, connected with that character so much, which is 
that like shouldn't be right because of all the stuff that happens to him it definitely not happens to me yeah but just like the emotions and I literally remember someone in school told me I was a wallflower oh once and I was just like I remember I read the whole book in a night and like cried (laughs) yeah I think this was maybe the first book that I ever cried at because I like like, I'd cried at books because characters had died and stuff before. Yeah. But this was the first one that I cried at because it just made me feel stuff. Yeah, yeah. And I was like, oh. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, this is, the, this is the beginning. It happened that green and crazy summer when Frankie was 12 years old. This was the summer when, for a long time, she had not been a member. She belonged to no club and was a member of nothing in the world. Frankie had become an unjoined person who hung around in doorways and she was afraid. In June the trees were bright dizzy green, but later the leaves darkened and the town turned black and shrunken under the glare of the sun. At first Frankie walked around doing one thing and another. The sidewalks of the town were grey in the early morning and at night, but the noon sun put a glaze on them so that the cement burned and glittered like glass. The sidewalks finally became too hot for Frankie's feet and also she got herself in trouble. She was in so much secret trouble that she thought it was better to stay at home and at home there was only Bernice Sadie Brown and John Henry West. The three of them sat at the kitchen table, saying the same things over and over, so that by August the words began to rhyme with each other and sound strange. The world seemed to die each afternoon and nothing moved any longer. At last the summer was like a green sick dream, or like a silent crazy jungle under glass. And then, on the last Friday of August, all this was changed. It was so sudden that Frankie puzzled the whole blank afternoon, and she still did not understand. It's so very queer, she said, the way it all just happened. Happened? Happened, said Bernice. John Henry listened and watched them quietly. I've never been so puzzled. But puzzled about what? The whole thing, Frankie said. And Bernice remarked, I believe the sun has fried your brains. Me too, John Henry whispered. Frankie herself almost admitted maybe so. It was four o'clock in the afternoon and the kitchen was square and grey and quiet. Frankie sat at the table with her eyes half closed and she thought about a wedding. She saw a silent church, a strange snow slanting down against the coloured windows. The groom in this wedding was her brother and there was a brightness where his face should be. The bride was there in a long white train and the bride was also faceless. There was something about this wedding that gave Frankie a feeling she could not name. Look here at me, said Bernice. You jealous? Jealous? Jealous because your brother is going to be married? No, said Frankie. I just never saw any two people like them. When they walked in the house today, it was so queer. You're jealous, said Bernice. Go and behold yourself in the mirror. I can see it from the colour in your eye. There was a watery kitchen mirror hanging above the sink. Frankie looked, but her eyes were grey, as they always were. This summer, she was grown so tall that she was almost a freak, and her shoulders were narrow, her legs too long. She wore a pair of blue track shorts, a BVD under vest, and she was barefooted. Her hair had been cut like a boy's, but it had not been cut for a long time, and now it was not even partied. The reflection in the glass was warped and crooked, but Frankie knew well what she looked like. She drew up her left shoulder and turned her head aside. Oh, she said, they were the two prettiest people I ever saw. I just can't understand how it happened. I love the phrase, secret trouble. Yeah. That's so cool. (laughs) I know. And isn't it so, like, accurate for when you're a kid and you think that everything is big. Yeah, yeah. I like that, that it's like, she can't explain how she feels. 
Because mm-hmm. I feel like often, like, you do read characters, so it's like, you know everything that they feel. Mm-hmm. It's not even like she's saying, like, oh, I'm confused. It's just yeah, she like, can't even name that she's yeah, confused. Yeah, yeah. Oh, I liked that. Yeah. So, anyway, I don't have much to say about the beginning. I just think that it's a really beautiful beginning. I love all the language. I love the repetition of all the colours. Yeah. And, like, I feel like, yeah, when it gets to that point in the summer where you feel like the summer's never going to end, I feel like that's a very childlike feeling. Yeah, definitely. But I think that the reason that this book got under my skin so much wasn't much to do with that. It was that it had this one passage in it which articulates an idea that I had like I think I'd like known for a long time as a teenager but I didn't really have the vocabulary to put it into words and the idea was like truth is subjective so I was always when I was younger quite preoccupied with the idea of like honesty and telling the truth and I had only female friends like I was in a group of girls so I think like the fact that like rumour and white lies becomes Mm. part of like your social fabric Mm -hmm. I really really struggled with that and something that I used to think about all the time was like what if what I'm perceiving isn't the truth because what if someone's saying like what if someone else is saying that they perceive the same event differently like how do I know that I'm telling the truth because I didn't want to lie yeah which, like, looking back now and knowing, like, be just knowing more things about the world, <laughs> I'm like, obviously you don't know that you're telling the truth because truth is subjective, that's yeah. it. But I was really anxious about that all the time and I didn't know how to explain that because I thought it sounded stupid. And I used to also worry about, like, what if what I mean and what I say are different? Mm. So, like, what if I say something and I think I know what I mean but by the time it reaches the other person's ears it means something else? Yeah. These were all the things that I was, you know, freaked out about. And then I read this passage, which is a conversation between Frankie, who at this point in the story has decided to go by the name F. Jasmine, for reasons to do with the story, and the maid, Bernice. Listen, F. Jasmine said, what I've been trying to say is this. Doesn't it strike you as strange that I am I and you are you? I am F. Jasmine Adams and you are Bernice Sadie Brown. And we can look at each other and touch each other and stay together year in and year out in the same room. Yet always I am I and you are you. And I can't ever be anything else but me and you can't ever be anything else but you. Have you ever thought of that? And does it seem to you strange? Bernice had been rocking slightly in the chair. She was not sitting in a rocking chair, but she'd been tilting back in the straight chair and then letting the front legs hit the floor with little taps. Her dark stiff hand held to the table edge for balance. She stopped rocking herself when F. Jasmine spoke, and finally she said, I have thought of it occasionally. It was the hour when the shapes in the kitchen darkened and the voices bloomed. They spoke softly and their voices bloomed like flowers, if sounds can be like flowers and voices bloom. F. Jasmine stood with her hands clasped behind her head, facing the darkening room. She had the feeling that unknown words were in her throat, and she was ready to speak them. Strange words were flowering in her throat and now was the time for her to name them. This, she said. I see a green tree, and to me it is green, and you would call the tree green also, and we would agree on this, but is the colour you see as green the same colour I see as green? Or say we both call a colour black, but how do we know that what you see as black is the same colour I see as black? Bernice said after a moment, those things we just cannot prove. 
F. Jasmine scraped her head against the door and put her hand up to her throat. Her voice shattered and died. That's not what I meant to say anyway. Oh. <laughs> I've literally had that thought about colours. Same. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> but yeah, that that scene, especially the bit about the colours, yeah. lives in my mind rent-free 24-7 yeah. for about 10 years now. I love all the repetition in it, because that is like a thought process. Like, yeah. That's like how you think you do. Or it's how I think. Like, yeah. You're kind of repeating the same stuff to yourself. And, and that idea of like, you're, it's almost like she's rehearsing it before it comes out of her yeah, mouth. Yeah, yeah, Because yeah. she doesn't know what's going to come out of her mouth. Yeah. But yeah, I just think it's like such a simple and like succinct and also like childlike way of representing that like gulf of understanding that comes with being an individual person mm. in a world of like other individual people. Mm-hmm. We don't know that we're seeing the same colours. We can measure the frequency of light, but not the perception of it. So it's always this, it's just like a, oh, it's such a good metaphor for the idea that you know what's being put out, but you don't know what's being taken in. Yeah. And Bernice saying, like, some things you just can't prove made me realise that not only have I had this thought, and not only has Carson McCullers had this thought, but actually everyone has that thought. Mm. And that made me feel less alone. Oh. So that's why that particular book is very important to me. (laughs) Everyone should read it, it's really good. Yeah, I've not read any Carson McCullers, but like, it's just one of those authors I've mm. always meant to, because I also love Tennessee Williams. I remember I did him in college and I was like, this guy. Yeah, <laughs> Sweet Bird of Youth is... I love mm. Sweet Bird of Youth. So good. Yeah. But yeah, all of her stuff is so sad though. Yeah. Like, oh, like I'm getting quite emotional I think just that's from maybe those... why I've not read it because I know that it's sad and like I feel like that's the kind of book you have to be in a certain mood for yeah or or I do anyway yeah it's like but the thing that like messes me up with it is that nothing like sad things do happen tragic things do happen in all our books but that's not the sad bits it's the bits like that that make me sad but yeah so the second book and the second little epiphany are also to do with communication we're writers (laughs) this is what we think about but this one was more about like communicating with yourself. Mm-hmm. So I was a bit older when I read The Heart is a Lonely Hunter. Um, I wrote my undergrad dissertation on it. And the whole story revolves around a man who is mute in a town that thrives on like hearsay and small talk. So right away you've got like the theme of internal communication. Mm-hmm. Boom, done. But the character that made a lasting impression on me wasn't Mr. Singer, who's the, the mute protagonist. It was like Frankie, a sort of cipher from the colours, and it's a tomboyish teenager called Mick. So Mick is the character in this book whose inner world we get the most of, partly because she starts off in the novel as a child, so her inner world is just like richer and simpler. And obviously, like what you were saying there about the first person narration, inner worlds are one of the best parts of reading a book because it's the thing that books can do better than anything else, yeah. right? Like. You can't get it in a film as much as you can get it in a book. Yeah. And with Mick, McCullers really draws attention to the separation of inner and outer because she's at this age where she's starting to have to negotiate problems and situations outside of herself. So to understand that in her own pre-adolescent vocabulary, she uses this really beautiful metaphor of rooms. So I'm going to read some extracts from this chapter where she talks about her rooms Mm -hmm. and the way that it pertains to Mr Singer, who lodges in Mick's parents' house. 
And before I read this, there is absolutely nothing sinister that goes on between Mr. Singer and Mick. I want to make that quite clear. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) George and her didn't get any lunch money now. She had to stop the music lessons. Portia saved the leftovers from dinner for her and George to eat after school. All the time they had their meals in the kitchen. Whether Bill and Hazel and Etta sat with the boarders or ate in the kitchen depended on how much food there was. In the kitchen they had grits and grease and side meat and coffee for breakfast. For supper they had the same thing along with whatever could be spared from the dining room. The big kids griped whenever they had to eat in the kitchen. And sometimes she and George were downright hungry for two or three days. But this was in the outside room. It had nothing to do with music and foreign countries and plans that she made. The winter was cold. Frost was on the window panes. At night the fire in the living room crackled very warm. All the family sat by the fire with the boarders, so she had the middle bedroom to herself. She wore two sweaters and a pair of Bill's outgrown corduroy pants. Excitement kept her warm. She would bring out her private box from under the bed and sit on the floor to work. In the big box, there were the pictures she had painted at the government free art class. She'd taken them out of Bill's room. Also in the box, she kept three mystery books which her dad had given her. A compact, a box of watch parts, a rhinestone necklace, a hammer and some notebooks. One notebook was marked on the top with a red crayon, private, keep out, private, and tied with a string. She had worked on music in this notebook all the winter. She quit studying school lessons at night so she could have more time to spend on music. Mostly she had written just little tunes, songs without any words and without even any bass notes to them. They were very short. But even if the tunes were only half a page long, she gave them names and drew her initials underneath them. Nothing in this book was a real piece or a composition. They were just songs in her mind she wanted to remember. She named them how they reminded her. Africa and A Big Fight and the snowstorm. She couldn't write the music just like it sounded in her mind. She had to thin it down to only a few notes, otherwise she got too mixed up to go further. There was so much she didn't know about how to write music, but maybe after she learned how to write these simple tunes fairly quick, she could begin to put down the whole music in her mind. And then over the page. In the inside room, along with music, there was Mr Singer. Every afternoon, as soon as she finished playing on the piano in the gym, she walked down the main street past the store where he worked. From the front window, she couldn't see Mr Singer. He worked in the back behind a curtain. But she looked at the store where he stayed every day and saw the people he knew. Then every night, she waited on the front porch for him to come home. Sometimes she followed him upstairs. She sat on the bed and watched him put away his hat and undo the button on his collar and brush his hair. For some reason, it was like they had a secret together or like they waited to tell each other things that had never been said before. He was the only person in the inside room. A long time ago there had been others. She thought back and remembered how it was before he came. She remembered a girl way back in the sixth grade named Celeste. This girl had straight blonde hair and a turned up nose and freckles. She wore a red wool jumper with a white blouse. She walked pigeon-toed. Every day she brought an orange for a little recess and a blue tin box of lunch for big recess. Other kids would gobble the food they'd brought at Little Recess and then were hungry later, but not Celeste. She pulled off the crusts of her sandwich and only ate the soft middle part. Always she had a stuffed hard-boiled egg and she would hold it in her hand, mashing the yellow with her thumb so that the print of her finger was left there. Celeste never talked to her and she never talked to Celeste, although that was what she wanted more than anything else. 
At night she would lie awake and think about Celeste. She would plan that they were best friends and think about the time when Celeste could come home with her to eat supper and spend the night. But that never happened. The way she felt about Celeste would never let her go up and make friends with her like she would any other person. After a year, Celeste moved to another part of town and went to another school. Then there was a boy called Buck. He was big and had pimples on his face. When she stood by him in line to march in at 8.30, he smelled bad, like his breeches needed airing. Buck did a nosedive at the principal once and was suspended. When he laughed, his upper lip... When he laughed, he lifted his upper lip and shook all over. She thought about him like she thought about Celeste. Then there was the lady who sold lottery tickets for a turkey raffle, and Miss Anglin, who taught the seventh grade, and Carol Lombard in the movies. All of them. But with Mr Singer, there was a difference. (laughs) And then one more extract. It's not a long one. This is about Mr Singer. Each new thing she learned about him was important. He kept his toothbrush and toothpaste in a glass on his table, so instead of leaving her toothbrush on the bathroom shelf, she kept it in a glass also. He didn't like cabbage. Harry, who worked for Mr Brannan, mentioned that to her. Now she couldn't eat cabbage either. When she learned new facts about him, or when she said something to him and he wrote a few words with a silver pencil, she had to be off by herself for a long time to think it over. When she was with him, the main thought in her mind was to store up everything so that later she could live it over and over. But in the inside room, with music and Mr Singer was not all. Many things happened in the outside room. She fell down the stairs and broke off one of her front teeth. Miss Minner gave her two bad cards in English. She lost a quarter in a vacant lot, and although she and George hunted for three days, they never found it. This happened. And that's as far as I'm going to read. <laughs> I loved that first line, like, every every new thing she learned about him was important. Yeah. That's a lovely line. I know. I think it's so, like, pure yeah. as well. Yeah, For, like, this little crush or whatever that she has <laughs> on him. It's so sweet. But, um... Yeah, I love that idea of like the inside and the outside room mm-hmm. because again, I don't think it's groundbreaking. Like I knew about the psychology of compartmentalization yeah. before I read this. But I think that the idea of a room feels so much easier to I to digest than like a world mm-hmm. or like a life, like an inner life and an outer life. Mm-hmm. Also that like cultivating an inside room that you can take refuge in is a good survival tactic as a human. Yeah. Her whole arc, Mick's whole arc, becomes about her trying to preserve her access to her own inside room as she grows older and not letting the outside problems like money or work or whatever impede her access to it. And, like, I don't think it's a spoiler to say because I think it happens to everyone as you get older, but she finds it harder and harder Mm. as she grows. And I don't know, I just thought it was a really nice metaphor to remember. Yeah. And I also love the idea that when someone else starts entering your inside room, that's when you know that they're special. Yeah, yeah, I like that. And as well as, like, the reasons that I just liked it as a person, I think it's a really good storytelling tactic. I touched on this when we talked about Out of Love by Hazel Hayes, but when an author makes a decision to have, like, a definite narrative aside taking place inside the character's head outside of the passage of time mm-hmm. of the novel's events mm-hmm. it obviously allows you to access the character more deeply but it also allows you to pass the time quite seamlessly so that the next time that you enter that outside room it can be with the next event that drives the plot yeah so yeah i think that helped me also understand about telling a story and like the idea that spending time in your inside room 
Yeah. Whether it's yourself or like a character is very valuable. Yeah, that's something I'm trying to do in my like novel that I'm writing as well. Really? So yeah. Like have a sides inside the like the head of the character. Yeah. I then... think you get like I think the advice of show don't tell fucks with that a bit. Yeah. Because you start to second guess yourself. But I think that you can show not tell and still live in the inside room. Yeah. And my third little rumination <laughs> comes from McCullough's novella, The Ballad of the Sad Cafe, which I just read this year. But the idea in my own writing that I've been like playing with for about 18 months is the idea that unrequited love can be a place of like safety or quite indulgent sadness mm. rather than something that is just negative and bad and like yearning. Yeah. Like it doesn't have to hurt. Yeah. And I've been trying to write an essay or like a poem about that for literally months. <laughs> but it's never came out right and I've never been able to articulate why I feel that yeah. way. And then I read this passage from The Ballad of the Sad Cafe. The narrator in this, because it's a shorter work, the narrator is much more removed from the characters. And so the characters don't really matter at all. Mm. But this is what the narrator writes about them. First of all, love is a joint experience between two persons. But the fact that it is a joint experience does not mean that it is a similar experience to the two people involved. There are the lover and the beloved, but these two come from different countries. Often the beloved is only a stimulus for all the stored up love which has lain quiet within the lover for a long time hitherto, And somehow every lover knows this. He feels in his soul that his love is a solitary thing. He comes to know a new, strange loneliness, and it is this knowledge which makes him suffer. So there is only one thing for the lover to do. He must house his love within himself as best he can. He must create for himself a whole new inward world, a world intense and strange, complete in himself. Let it be added here that this lover about whom we speak need not necessarily be a young man saving for a wedding ring. This lover can be man, woman, child, or indeed any human creature on this earth. Now, the beloved can also be of any description. The most outlandish people can be the stimulus for love. A man may be a doddering great-grandfather and still love only a strange girl he saw in the streets of Chihaw one afternoon two decades past. The preacher may love a fallen woman. The beloved may be treacherous, greasy-headed and given to evil habits. Yes, and the lover may see this as clearly as anyone else, but that does not affect the evolution of his love one whit. A most mediocre person can be the object of a love which is wild, extravagant and beautiful as the poison lilies of the swamp. A good man may be the stimulus for a love both violent and debased, or a jabbering madman may bring about in the soul of someone a tender and simple idyll. Therefore, the value and quantity of any love is determined solely by the lover himself. It is for this reason that most of us would rather love than be loved. Almost everyone wants to be the lover. And the curt truth is that, in a deep secret way, the state of being beloved is intolerable to many. The beloved fears and hates the lover, and with the best of reasons, for the lover is forever trying to strip bare his beloved. The lover craves any possible relation with the beloved, even if this experience can cause him only pain. Oh. <laughs> and now I don't have to write that essay. Yeah. <laughs> I love that line about... It was like, they can be mediocre, but they can still inspire, like... 
a wild, extravagant, and beautiful yeah, world. Yeah, I like that line. Yeah. She's got a lot of good lines. I know. <laughs> I know, she's so good. But yeah, I think, I honestly, that was like one page, and I sent that page to so many people when I read it, because I just think it's perfect. Yeah. I think it's like the same vibe as why Queen wrote Somebody to Love, <laughs> and not like Someone Who Loves Me. Yeah. And it almost builds on the other two ideas I've mentioned of like being connected by your inability to be anything but alone and of the inside room being more important than the outside room. Mm. Like loving takes place in the inside room, but being loved doesn't. Mm -hmm. So I don't know. I think as well she's really blunt in the way that she writes these things. Like there's no room for if that's a question. Yeah, there's no perhaps. There's no perhaps. It's very much a statement. And like I find that didactic like simple prose really comforting makes the world make sense (laughs) um so yeah those are my three favorite parts of three of my favorite books yeah oh i loved that (laughs) (laughs) and i feel quite emotional now (laughs) she's so good yeah your writing gone this week (laughs) i had a really good week of writing yeah you've been busy yeah so because of how my rota worked out i had six days off last week nice so i was making myself get up early and sitting at our dining table before you got up (laughs) yeah so so that i had a couple hours of like non-stop productivity each day so yeah, I'm I'm hoping to like stick to it on my days off work. It seems to be going well so far. Yeah, definitely. That's, that's the plan. And yeah, I mentioned this last episode, but I'm aiming to get the first draft of my novel written before January because January is when I start writing my thesis. Yeah. So yeah, I've been productive. It's been good. Feeling positive, <laughs> as I mentioned last time as well. Our friend Stephanie and I have like paired up as writing buddies to like motivate each other and Mm -hmm. it's been going well as well and I got to read some of her novel this week and it was so good it's so good that's all I'm allowed to say yeah Um, exciting though yeah but anyway that isn't what I want to talk about today I want to talk about the writing workshop with V Schwab that I mentioned in the intro yeah so she did this workshop for the Y'all Write Festival where she shared her extended metaphor for crafting a novel which is the story corpse I love this. I know. And it's all about how you can craft a novel by building a skeleton, muscle, flesh and makeup. And I'm not going to go into extreme detail about it because obviously that was a workshop she made for people who registered for it and I don't think it's right. Yeah, like, it's like her intellectual property. Exactly. But she like really broke down how to plan a novel, which is something I was really starting to doubt in myself the idea that I could like finish this massive project yeah so I know it's a bit shit for me to not like share everything she talked through but I'm it's not really right to but what I will say is like the starting point because I think that's Mm. like the most useful bit so I'll share that which is that she suggests writing like every beat down so every scene you want to have and you write a little paragraph describing that scene and then you've essentially made like however many prompts for yourself Mm -hmm. for each scene or each chapter in your novel and the idea is that by the time you've written a response to each of these prompts you have a first draft i love that idea of writing prompts for yourself i think that's so helpful yeah so i actually before recording this today that's what i sat and did today was i like wrote out all my 
little paragraphs mm. and like I'm already sort of like halfway through if you look at like the word count but it was still really useful for me to like go back and make sure I've not missed anything important definitely like looking at it all on a word document you know I like like zoomed out so I could see them Mm. all next to each other and I was like okay I can see that I kind of need another scene here like Mm. I need to like balance that there needs to be something between these two chapters like so it was really really useful and yeah we actually spoke about this the other day in real life but we did not learn how to plot at uni. No. Our creative writing degree did teach us lots of things about writing, but I wouldn't say it helped us with plotting or planning a story. No, writing, but not storytelling. Yeah, so in such a short amount of time, I felt like Schwab really explained it in very simple terms how to plan a novel, because it is really hard. It's not just sitting down and writing. There's so much thought that goes into it. And I was starting to worry that I was just like in over my head, mm-hmm. like trying to do this massive project. And like already Stephanie had been helping me talk through my ideas. I think I said this last week, but it just kind of helps to talk about it, like out loud. Yeah. And you can kind of like work out in your head whether there's something missing or not. So with that and then this workshop, I've now got like really practical tools to use. Yeah. So I feel very positive about the novel right now which is good because that doesn't always happen no that's awesome let's (laughs) hold on to that and document that shit i know exactly so yeah that was kind of all i wanted to say to them like i'm really glad i went to that workshop because it was i wasn't actually going to because it was nine o'clock hour time at night and it was a bit like oh i've got work tomorrow like can i be bothered but i'm so glad i did it because it's helped so much you've seemed so like bright since (laughs) you've been at it like you feel it's like you're so confident (laughs) yeah it's but it's so like it just annoys me that we did not learn that at uni because that could have been one lesson yeah it annoyed me because i remember i went to an extra workshop that wasn't part of our course but Mm. it was a screenwriting workshop Oh, right, yeah. And this was in the last year of our course. Yeah. And it was the first time I'd heard the term beat for a story. Oh, yeah. Like, at uni. I realised, like, no one had... We hadn't talked about stories in those, like, practical terms. Yeah. Because, yeah, like... I mean, we kind of said this, but I think we learnt how to write. We learnt lots of techniques that are very valuable and ones I still use. But, yeah, I just feel like... It was it was a very microscopic approach. Yeah. I think they needed to zoom out a little bit. Yeah. But yeah, I'm really glad I did that. I feel much better about all the writing stuff now. Future Emily here, just popping in to say that the Y'all Write Festival have actually uploaded the video of that workshop to their YouTube channel now. So I have linked it in the show notes. I am no longer a gatekeeper of this information. Back to past us. But how has your writing been this week? I haven't written as much the past two weeks just because with the election and stuff, I was really busy with work. But I did attend a couple of events. I got a spot on another one of Sabrina Benham's Good News Poetry open mics and it was awesome. (laughs) And I honestly just, I've said this so many times, but I can't recommend enough finding a writing community that like inspires you and lifts you up and that is just fun. Mm -hmm. Because like sometimes you can approach it with a really academic mindset and that's fine but also for me approaching it like a hobby and like just a fun thing to do helps Mm -hmm. and I've also been tuning into Charlie Brogan's Instagram lives on a Sunday 
where she's been doing readings of her poems and this week she had someone else on to do like a little reading of theirs as well. And I'm the worst for getting overwhelmed with choice and not going to any online events. Yeah. But these are two that just don't feel too high stakes. They're really cosy. And I always come away feeling more motivated. So Mm -hmm. if anyone has any recommendations for similar events where the vibe is chill, that are regular, because I think I really enjoy the idea that it's like something you can come back to. Yeah. Then please let me know. Mm -hmm. And also I thought, because I always feel like I come to the segment and I'm like, oh yeah, I've not really written that much. Or like, oh, I did this bit of writing, but that's all I'll say. I thought that I'd start trying to use this segment to be more open about ideas that I'm developing. Uh-huh. Because I thought that might be more helpful or interesting. Yeah. So, as if this is like my notebook for ideas, <laughs> in my little writing brain just now, in my inside room, <laughs> I have been obsessed all week with the lyric, I could drink a case of you and I'd still be on my feet. Yes. By Joni Mitchell, obviously, because yes. you were listening to the James Blake version of that song. Yeah. And I was just like, man, that's a fucking good song. It is a very good song. And the more I think about it, the more I'm just like, that's so original and such a beautiful way to tell someone that you can handle them mm. and that you enjoy being there for them. Yeah. I think that's like, oh, so nice. And so that feeling is something that obviously has, you know, been in my brain. And I'm like, I want to find a way to maybe express that feeling in a different way or use that, either that or use the idea of drinking a case of you, like the words a case of you, and taking that in a different direction. Mm -hmm. I don't know. But I think the next short piece that I write will be something to do with that. Yeah. So I thought what I'd do is next time I'll come back and say what I ended up doing there. Yeah, that'd be cool. Because I like when people share the development of specific ideas. Yeah. So I thought I'd do that. Yeah, definitely. That's one thing like I kind of wish I could do on here because I'm just working on the one big project. Like I can't yeah. say anything. Yeah, I'm not going to say um, anything about my novel, but I think this will yeah. be a piece that will be finished soon. Yeah, yeah, that's cool. Yeah, <laughs> that's, that's my writing. <laughs> Do you have a quick fire favourite for us this week? I do. I have a YouTube video to recommend. Okay. Which is an interview between Megan Fox and Diablo Cody. And it is all about Jennifer's body, which Megan starred in and Diablo Cody wrote. Uh-huh. And this actually came out last year, but YouTube recommended it to me because I think I watched another video about Jennifer's body and then I also watched Machine Gun Kelly's Bloody Valentine music video, which Megan Fox is in. Mm. And so I think YouTube was just like... You Here's need Megan Fox. Yeah. Um, and yeah, I wanted to say I've mentioned before that Scream's my favorite horror film, but this is like number two. Like this is this is runner up. I have to say, like I've not watched that many horror films, but we watched this the other night. Yeah. And I loved it. It's so good. If you've never seen it, please watch it. It's about a girl who becomes a succubus and eats boys. It's so fucking funny. <laughs> yeah. It's this incredible like feminist film though, and it's so witty and so intelligent, but it's wrapped up in like a horror bubble. Yeah. Uh, Adam Brody is delightfully horrible in it. Yup. Soundtrack is awesome. Amanda Seyfried is yeah. weirdly badass. Oh yeah. She's so cool in this, yeah. And yeah, the soundtrack's also really cool. Panic at a Disco wrote a song for it. It's great. But anyway, um, (laughs) this interview is great because it's just really honest. Jennifer's body tanked at the box office 
but now it's getting this huge following and it's mostly like teenage or like young 20s girls who are finding it and finding so much meaning in it and they discuss why it tanked and one of the reasons is that it was marketed towards guys who wanted to see Megan Fox naked. Yeah, Um, I didn't see it because I thought that was the vibe. Yeah, so all the test audiences apparently were either fans of Juno, which is Diablo Cody's first film. This is not like Juno. Mm -hmm. Uh, Or like 18 to 25 year old guys. Which wouldn't... Who just, it did not like all the sort of allegory just would have gone over their head because they're not teenage girls. Yeah. And Megan Fox actually says in that interview, like, most of her fans, like, if you look at, like, her social media and stuff, are teenage girls. Mm -hmm. So she's like, I don't know why they thought, like, you know, why the production and whatever thought, like... Yeah, even the trailer, though, was, like, heavy on the girls are gonna kiss yeah, in no, this exactly. film and like it yeah. was like really targeted at like sleazy audiences yeah they actually talk about that in this interview Megan Fox says the scene that me and Amanda hated filming was the kissing scene and they were like not because we were uncomfortable or whatever but we were just in our heads we were thinking this is going to be used in the trailer yeah this is what everyone's going to talk about and they're going to miss the point of the scene yeah but yeah anyway sorry I'm, I'm going on a rant today but yeah so this video is a chat about that also about their breakdowns after the film because both women were so negatively received in tabloids and social media they also talk about motherhood therapy ins and outs of how the film was made but one thing i really want to sort of shout out was megan's conversation about the me too movement and how she's been portrayed in the media so rebecca and i did a module on hollywood literature a couple of years ago and part of the focus was on star image mm-hmm. and how the public persona isn't the real person. And Megan has had so much backlash over the years and I think it's related to that use of the star image. Definitely. Um, I've actually seen her be compared to Marilyn Monroe before. Yeah. Because both are like intelligent, funny, talented, but they're reduced to how they look. Megan's always been sexualized and objectified. So when she tried to speak out over sexual assault and objectification, she was always like berated. Yeah, oh, um, you've profited off this, so. Yeah. And obviously, now there have been so many steps forward to dealing with sexual assault and filmmaking and other industries, but it's still really fascinating to hear her perspective as someone who feels like they were too early for the movement, so no one believed them. Yeah. Which is just really sad. And I actually wanted to read out a quote of hers about this. So, the scene that she mentions here is a human sacrifice that is done on her. Jennifer is the victim. This indie band are sacrificing her to receive fame. She's drugged and the sacrifice is meant to be a metaphor for date rape. So this is the quote from Megan Fox. She says, I realised that in filming that scene where they sacrificed me, that for me, that was really reflective of what I felt like was my relationship with movie studios at that point. Because I felt like that's what they were willing to do, to literally bleed me dry. They did not care about my health, my well-being, mentally, emotionally, physically at all. And they were willing to sacrifice me physically as long as they got what they wanted out of it. And it didn't matter how many times I spoke up and said, I'm hurting, this isn't right, I need someone to protect me, this is going on, someone needs to listen, it didn't matter at all. So yeah, I just find that very brave of her to admit. And it's a really great interview, totally recommend it. And yeah, you guys should watch Jennifer's Body too because it's amazing. I really want to watch that interview now because like, yeah, I always liked Megan Fox, but I didn't know much about her. Mm-hmm. 
and like my first introduction to her was in Hope and Faith where she yeah. was the daughter and even though she was supposed to be like the promiscuous teenage daughter she was still the daughter yeah so I was like I don't know I have a lot of sympathy for her because the first portrayal of her I saw was a child yeah and then when she was in Transformers and stuff like that the media just got so fucked up about her yeah yeah I think yeah she, ta- she talks about that in the interview like I, I can't remember what she says off the top of her head but she talks a lot about like press junkets and stuff and how she would joke about stuff and then those tabloids would get printed as if she, she meant it, it. And yeah. I think it was just a whole big mess and no one would listen to her because like oh you're just like a sexual object yeah <laughs> yeah but yeah I love Megan Fox I I can't remember if I've talked about this before but I used to have on my wardrobes at home I had just like printouts of just like celebrities that I liked and mm-hmm. it was mostly like guys it was like oh who'd ever had on it like Logan Lerman Jake Gyllenhaal Jared Padlecki love it <laughs> um so I had like all these guys but I also had like girls that I liked as well just like oh I think they're so cool or I like, want to be like them yeah and me- I remember Megan Fox was one of them so there you go Megan. um but anyway yeah just really loved that interview and that was not quick fire no but it was good we were infatuated though so it was fine yeah <laughs> so yeah what about you my quick fire favorite is drum roll <laughs> from a male artist <gasps> and it is Henry Jameson's album The Wilds it's a sort of folky alternative album from 2017, which I've realised was an absolutely golden year for music. Yeah. So many of my favourite albums came out in 2017. But anyway, yeah, so it's not new, but it's new to me. I hadn't really heard of any, any of this stuff before. Yeah. And there's so much lyrical influence from singer-songwriters like Joni Mitchell, like Leonard Cohen, like Suzanne Vega. It's all very, like, New York pronounce all your consonants (laughs) put pretty words in a song just because they're pretty kind Mm. of music but what I liked about this album what I found like new and refreshing for me was that there's a lot about negotiating modern masculinity like okay so this isn't from that album this is from his second album but he has a really good lyric where he's like all the baby boys they're dressing them in blue and teaching them that life's a war which I think is a really good lyric. But anyway, yeah. yeah, he's really, like, concerned with men should be allowed to have feelings. Yeah. And he has also has a lot about, like, substance abuse and recovery um, and alcohol abuse. And it's, so it's all really sad, but it's not depressing mm. because the music isn't depressing. So, yeah, love it. Can't stop listening to it. And I have a favourite lyric that I think, weirdly in my head, because I was reading it at the same time as listening to this, got tied to Adi LaRue. All right, yeah. But the lyric is, if all is fair in love and war, then I don't know what we're fighting for. So if we don't care to fight no more, let's go upstairs and let's shut the door. <laughs> I like that. And yeah, I won't say why that reminds me of it, but it reminds me of it. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, just good artist, would recommend. Yeah, he's one of those artists, like, I've heard the odd song from him. Mm. You know, it's been like... It's just come up on like playlists and stuff, and I I have always liked what I've heard of his. So yeah, you know what I'm like. I I hear one good song and I'm like, well, I'm listening to that album yeah. for the next two <laughs> weeks. Okay, so no rant for you this week. No rant. I feel like I've said enough. <laughs> okay. 
Do you have an insight for us? Yeah, so I was struggling to come up with an idea for today. So what I decided to do was go to my Pinterest board where I save Greek mythology memes to send to you and Stephanie. Uh And I'm just going to read out some memes. (laughs) I love it. I love that this bit has just descended into, like, shit that we like. So, these are all about the Iliad or, like, Achilles and Patroclus, but they're not, like, the Song of Achilles Mm. specific. I guess spoilers for the Iliad. I think the Statute of Limitations is up on that. Right. I think I have five. So, this is number one. Achilles. When I die, mix my ashes with Patroclus's so we may forever be together. Agamemnon. Haha, ha, everybody loves a good romance. <laughs> Number two. What she says. I'm fine. What she means. Achilles spent an indefinite amount of time in the underworld not knowing if he'd ever get to be with Fagiclus again. Sad. That's 100% you. Yep. <clears throat> I'm pretty sure I sent this one to you. Somebody should make a version of the very hungry caterpillar about Achilles and call it the very angry Achilles and it can be about all the people slash things he fought. On Monday, Achilles fought one river, but he was still angry. On Tuesday, Achilles pierced through two Trojans, but he was still angry. On Wednesday, Achilles dragged Hector around the walls three times, but he was still angry. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, my sweet angry prince. I know. Right, so this one is called Alternative Titles for the Iliad. (laughs) I'm pretty sure I've seen this one as well. Okay. One. Hello, naughty Trojans, it's murder time. (laughs) (laughs) Two. 100 times a therapist was needed. (laughs) Three. This war really wasn't worth it. Four. Fight club, but it's just Achilles. (laughs) Five. Patroclus didn't deserve this. So true. So true. Six. Things historians pretend aren't gay. (laughs) Seven. Nothing means anything. We're all going to die. I mean, that's just alternative (laughs) title for 2020. Eight. Hector gets his ass handed to him. Yep. Nine. There is no heterosexual explanation for this. (laughs) (laughs) Ten. Fuck it up, Achilles. (laughs) 11. Someone is responsible for this, but not Helen. Nope. <laughs> Definitely wasn't Helen. I saw, just on yeah. the note of that, I saw a tweet the other day that was like, it was some woman talking about her kid. Her kid's like 11 or 12. Mm-hmm. Like, so proper Gen Z. Mm-hmm. And she was like, yeah, my kid was just, just absolutely roasted all the Gen Xers and Millennials for being tired and then like because we were all like oh we're all so tired all the time yeah and she was like yeah but no wonder that you're all tired because you all had to pretend to be hetero for so long (laughs) (laughs) and i was just like i don't know if it was one of those bullshit tweets but i was also like yeah i hope that's real probably is i fucking love the next generation (laughs) go ahead okay so this one is questions that iliad is meant to inspire how free are we really as human beings to make our own decisions Where should the line be drawn between heroism and cruelty? Ought the quest for individual honour to be prioritised over the lives of others? Questions I have. 
What accounts for the bro code dissonance of Agamemnon stealing Achilles' girl when he's literally leading an army in a war that was started because Paris stole his brother's girl? Fair. Is Diomede single? (laughs) Is he not really old? I don't remember. (laughs) (laughs) To the nearest thousand, how many heart emojis would Achilles text to Patroclus in an average day if the technology were available? (laughs) And that is the Greek mythology memes for today. Thank you. (laughs) Love it. What a segment. (laughs) Oh, I enjoyed that. Oh, that was fun. Do we have a question this week from our lovely listeners? We do. We have a question from Liam. Okay, hi Who Liam. is actually my ex-boyfriend. Hi Liam. <laughs> I think, have we mentioned on here he was like the catalyst for us being best pals basically? I think we must have. I think so. But anyway, I didn't know he listened to this until he submitted this question. But I think it's very lovely that he does listen. Yeah. So Shout hi Liam. Liam. Hi. He was also a creative writing student with us, so I love that we're just slowly dragging everyone on our course into this podcast. Yeah, we're just like, hi guys, you're never escaping this fucking course. You thought you'd graduated? You're wrong. (laughs) But anyway, his question is this. Can you talk about inspirations and or what keeps you motivated to write? Ooh. The big question. The big question. So... For inspirations, like, I'm definitely going to sound like a broken record, but it's got to be Aaron Morgenstern, Madeline Miller, Neil Gaiman, Newly, V. Schwab, clearly. I really do just love authors who, like, take something ordinary and make it extraordinary. Definitely. Or those who have very, like, emotional writing, but also very, like, lyrical and poetic, but in prose, and a mix of all of those things. And I also love Cassandra Clare's books obviously and I think the reason I like hers so much is because she writes characters who people fall in love with like Mm. including myself and that inspires me for sure like the idea of creating characters who people care about and get attached to yeah um like that's what I always am striving to do when I'm writing and I'm like definitely sure that's because of her yeah like there's other things that inspire me like day to day but those are like the authors that that's i would fair. say do you want to say your inspirations and then we sure. can talk about like motivations after. i think my inspirations come from like the the most basic i would say is like confessional lyricism mm. so a lot of the times it's songs a lot of the times it's poetry sometimes it's prose um sometimes it's essay but I love people that write about life in a way that you can tell that's their authentic experience of it. Even if it's not true, their writing conveys an authenticity Yeah, that resonates even if you haven't experienced the same things as them. Mm-hmm. Um, so like Eve Babbitts, Dolly Alderton, all the songwriters that I've mentioned ever on this podcast. Yeah. Even Carson McCullers, you know, mm-hmm. from there. And yeah, I think like I get really, I don't know, I get inspired by like that resonance. Like, yeah. Then when I think of the correct, what I deem the correct phrase for a certain experience or emotion, that's like where my sense of achievement comes from. And mm-hmm. that's what I want to like share. So I think yeah. that's, yeah. Also, just like, you know, t- trees and love and shit yeah 
yeah like the I, world <laughs> yeah like, like I said I have like like daily inspirations yeah. of like just random stuff I get inspired by like songs a lot as well like lyrics as well yeah what motivates me to write is kind of tough because I think like as cliche as it sounds like I've always wanted to write mm. but I suppose on a smaller scale like I feel accomplished when I've written something so that's a motivator yeah like I get joy out of writing something very good and being like oh I liked that yeah <laughs> so, like that motivates me like day to day I normally like say to myself at least if I write a sentence today then I've like that's a win mm-hmm if we're going like super sappy motivation like I have a dream of being a published author so like I have to write or that'll never happen yeah I don't know I suppose like if I went like even even sappier like like my dad motivates me because like I I remember he wasn't like super keen on me doing English at first and I think it's just like that typical practical dad thing if he was like you're not going to get a, a job, job. Mm. <laughs> but uh, I think like throughout the years he's become my biggest supporter he always asks what I'm reading he's read both my dissertations and like I think it's a big motivation for me to like be able to like hand him a copy of like a published book and be yeah. like I did it I did this thing yeah so like I have like daily motivations which are the more sort of practical like if you want to finish this you actually have to write it Mm -hmm. and then I have like the big dreams yeah you know that scene in Tangled where they're like I have a dream (laughs) it's like that scene (laughs) (laughs) yes what about you kind of similar I think if the question was how do I keep myself motivated which is maybe what I think Liam means I don't know but I just remind myself that I actually like writing. Yeah. Like, sometimes going to sit down and write feels like a chore because it's what you've decided you're going to do with your life. Mm-hmm. But I just have to remind myself. I always compare it in my head to swimming because mm. I never, ever want to go swimming because it's like, I'm going to have to shave my legs and then I have to go to the pool and then I have to get changed and it's gross and I don't like the changing rooms and then when I come out, I'm going to have to wash my hair and I'm going to stink of chlorine. Yeah. But I actually love swimming. Yeah. And when I'm in the pool, I'm always like, I'm so glad that I came and did this. Yeah, yeah. So writing's like that. Yeah. And like, I have to remind myself that I like doing it when it's happening. Mm-hmm. But for what like drives me to it in the first place, I don't know. I think I just, I've always done it. So I don't really yeah. know how else to exist. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like, I, I obviously want to be published and I'd love to like, I love performing my work and like reading it out and like sharing it I get a lot out of that and I Mm. didn't used to think that I would because I used to think of myself as quite shy Mm. and I've discovered I actually really like that part Mm -hmm. so the idea of for me is like if I want to ever tour my work I have to have work to tour yeah I also think for ages as well like I just kind of always thought writing was going to be a hobby Mm. I think I'd kind of like settled in my head like oh it's fine like you're really good at academic writing so that's what you'll go into and like the other thing will just be a hobby but it's like literally just in the past like year maybe I feel like I don't know something changed in my head and I was like oh I can do both yeah like because I I love academia like it's what I'm 
hopefully gonna well I'm in it mm-hmm. and I still want that's still like very much a goal in my life is to like get my PhD and all that but I, th- I think I've kind of realized in my head as well like oh there's nothing stopping you from also writing a novel yeah and publishing it I mean obviously the publishing isn't up to me but like <laughs> I, I think being yeah. exactly the same I think like the idea that it's just taken so long to sink in for me that you can be an author and that doesn't have to be all you are yeah like yeah. you can do your other stuff and it doesn't make you less of a writer mm-hmm. and it doesn't make you a hobbyist you're yeah. still a real writer well look at madeline miller like she's like got her phd and she teaches mm-hmm. you know greek and latin and shakespeare pretty sure and but she has two amazing novels and she's writing more so it's just like oh i think i just needed to find some people who were mm-hmm. doing both to be like oh okay i get it yeah like i don't have to just be one thing Definitely. I think, like, for me, discovering and, like, really leaning into the fact that I love poetry has helped with that. Mm-hmm. Because there is no such thing as someone who's a full-time poet. Unless you're, <laughs> unless you're actually, like, Wendy Cope. Yeah. In which case, she can, she can be. But <laughs> most people have other stuff that they're doing. And also, writing's quite lonely. And I think I always was scared to be like, I want to be a writer, because I had this vision of, like, being locked away all the time. Mm-hmm. And now, like, the world isn't really set up like that. Yeah. And you can do other stuff and still be a writer. Yeah, definitely. That was very interesting chat there. Yeah, that was. Good question. Is that us? I think it is. Awesome. I think we're all done. So, yeah, if you guys have any questions or comments for us, please email us at infatuatedpodcasts at outlook.com we only have two episodes left this year that's so crazy that's mad <laughs> yeah if there's we... anything you'd like us to do for christmas yes tell us soon yes please do <laughs> and yeah we have social media which is linked below along with everything we've talked about today remember we're being more active on our social media now so come follow us guys yeah come and see our cool stuff and interact with us and talk to us because yes. it's isolation times in the COVID yes. and we are lonely. Also, more of you have been, which is very lovely. So yeah, thank we you. love that. And yeah, please leave us a review on the Apple Podcasts app. If you like us, give us five stars. <laughs> yep. That's how we get seen by other people. Yeah. And I think that's us. I think that's it. We're going to go now. I'm going to make us some mac and cheese. Oh, I'm excited. It's going to be good. <laughs> Bye. Bye. <laughs>